Hello, welcome back to True Crime Guys Podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. Happy Father's Day, everybody. We're recording this on Sunday, Father's That's Day. That's right. Happy Father's I like how Day. We record on, I like how we record on Father's Day, but we gave the Mother's Mother's Day off. We didn't record that week, but right. you know what? This is a treat for us recording anyway, so. Right. That, yeah. That's, it's, this is a normal day for us. We're fathers. We do what fathers do, you know? That's right. We got to work, but it's fun. It's fun work. It's yeah. fun work. And uh, this case, I just I couldn't wait to record it because it's madness, <laughs> isn't it? Though, talk about it tip is. of the iceberg. You think you you think you got a good handle on something, and you dive yeah. a little bit deeper, and you're like, wow, I'm I'm never gonna get to put down this shovel, am I? This is this right. is this is taking a while. <laughs> yeah. The but irony it's fun, is, though. the irony is, I picked this case because I took like a cursory glance at it, mm-hmm. and um, the, my mom has been wanting to. She's been like every week she pesters me like, what case are you doing? She's like all curious about it before we yeah. record it. And recently she kind of threw it out there. She's like, do you want help like with the crime line? Like I can help you. She's retired and she doesn't have a, you know, a lot to do on a daily basis. So, and she, she like is always curious about this stuff. So I'm like, yeah, like help me. We can do it together on a, you know, we'll set up a, an email thing together for it. We'll keep it in drafts and we can edit together. And you know, I'll add in stuff, you add in stuff. And, and so that's this awesome. being her first week of helping me, I was, I picked, this case because I thought that, you know, it was a pretty interesting, but at the same time, I didn't think there was, you thought it, it was more be, cut it would be and dry, too, right? Yeah, I thought it was. And then it turns out there's so, there's so many attachments to conspiracies and cults and stuff with this one. I was like, well, that, throwing you right in the deep end, mama. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're breaking her in awesome good. Job. I mean, yeah. a, a horrific murder, uh, cult shit, Ties to yeah. big serial killers. I mean, yeah, you you broke her in good with this case. If she can handle this yeah, something one, just she's going to be fine. Something just does not sit right with this case to me, and we're going to get into all that. But the, the way that it was wrapped up, I'm just yes. I don't I don't fully buy that. That's the, the just the the story, and that's that. You know, it just doesn't. Everything I know about true crime does doesn't add up. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, without giving away too much, let's get into the intro and get into the murder of Arliss Perry. All right, let's do it. Arliss, bright-eyed and honest She walked with favor and she wasn't afraid Anything to see a soul say Arliss, in the midst of all this Yeah. 
walked with favor and she wasn't afraid Anything to see a soul saved All is All is All right, our case this week, the murder of Arliss Perry. We're going to the Bay Area uh, for this case. However, it's going to take us all over the place. It's going to take us to North Dakota. It's going to take us to New York, even a little bit of England, because wow. there's cult yeah. ties to this one. There is serial killer ties. There are cult ties. This thing gets complex, um, and a lot of it is conspiracy theory. Don't get me wrong. There is a nice, neat package of this case if you look at the Wikipedia page and there's a little you know, excerpt of, well, there's also you know, talk that this person could have been involved, but probably yeah. not. That's the, that's the main narrative to this case. But man, when you really look into it, and I went and watched the four-part series, uh, docu-series called Sons of Sam on Netflix. We've obviously done the Son of Sam case on Netflix. And I don't know if, did we ever, uh, did I say Netflix, on uh, Patreon, did we ever release right. that one to the main feed though? I don't remember. I don't think we have. I don't okay. think we have. Um, that was one of my favorite episodes that we did, but I, I I know that I had a great time recording it, but I don't remember our take on some of this conspiracy stuff. I don't now, know if I, we talked at all about Arliss Perry in that. I don't um, think we talked about Arliss Perry, but I do think we talked about how we felt like the son of Sam, David Berkowitz rather, didn't act alone, and that it was a much bigger organization going on. Yeah. Right? But there was definitely those vibes. I mean, just looking at the sketches alone, I don't Dude, know. They don't write. They, they don't make sense. What right? the hell? It does not like, look like him. It looks a whole lot more like uh, one of the Car Brothers than it does. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And, and these sketches, these witnesses, were people who who were standing right in front of him, talking to yeah. him yeah. for a period yeah. of time and lived. So it, it's not like their 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 memories are are bad. And then the, the cars too. Like he he didn't have a Volkswagen Bug, and like there was those were seen at the the crime scenes, and like. Yeah, we'll talk all we'll get into all the the conspiracy involving that, but yeah, uh, just a cursory glance at this case. It looks nice nice and clean and clean and you know, the uh-huh. the public's the public and the police's uh story as to what happened involving Arliss Perry. It it seems like they 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 solved it and that's that, but they, they, man, I I just it does not sit right with me, so. Right. Well, there was a but. lot of pressure on police in this Arliss Perry case and these other cases that were Berkowitz, connected to this. For sure. There was so much pressure put on them. They yeah. they just had to tie it up, right? They just had to tie this up in a neat yeah. little bow and be like, "Okay, this is good. Can we all keep our jobs now?" You know what right. I mean? I feel like there was a lot of that going on in both this case and also the cases it's connected to Son of Sam and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, so. there's a big problem when it comes to the uh, to the justice system when it, in regards to careers are made oftentimes on you getting a conviction, you getting an arrest, right? Um, your conviction rate as an attorney or a, a prosecutor matters. Like I, I, there should it's one of those things that like it's it's tough because you have to incentivize it, but at the same time, it like also it's it's like some of the issues with capitalism too. Mm-hmm. I, I think capitalism is great, but at the same time, there, there's there should be limits on certain things. But right. I don't want to go down that whole rabbit hole, but <laughs> right, right. you know what I'm saying. There's an issue oh, yeah. in that people getting getting arrests and getting convictions is incentivized. It helps their career, and then you get things like they they just block out. They get tunnel vision. That's how you get wrongful convictions, and that's how you how you also don't get the full story. Where right. you just You're say less- David Berkowitz acted alone, and maybe you just ignore the fact that there was a lot of signs pointing to him being involved in a cult organization. Precisely. 
Precisely. You're, so. you're less focused on the accuracy and more, more on just that conviction, just closing the case. Yeah. Well, let's start at the beginning with Arliss K. Perry. Uh, she was born with the last name Dykema, but she would uh, marry a man with the last name Perry. We'll get into all that. So she was born on February 22nd, 1955. Shares a birthday with maybe one of the most infamous groups of people I've ever heard, like we've ever covered. George Washington. <laughs> never wow. heard of that guy. Steve uh, Irwin. Yeah. Robert Kardashian and Drew Barrymore. Wow. Yeah, that's a what crew. A what OJ's a group. best friend in there. That's cool. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> I will forever think of him as OJ's best friend now. Before watching the OJ Simpson versus the people, I never knew how Robert Kardashian got famous. I was like, how, why is he famous? How is he famous? What is this? Right. Who is this guy? And it just cleared so much up for me. Uh, mm-hmm. Watching that O.J. Simpson versus the people, uh, I had a totally different opinion of him. I guess watching Ross play him, too, from Friends. I was going to say, do you know uh, he's an underrated actor? He like, is. What the hell's his real name? I don't even remember. But uh, <laughs> I, don't people like, and, I loved right now. him in Band of Brothers. <laughs> Band of Brothers, yeah. he was just such a perfect character to play that, like that yeah. asshole role. Yeah, he, he's, he's more versatile than he seems. Yeah. I mean, he's really yeah, good. Just, David you, Schwimmer. Because David of Friends. Schwimmer. That's all, David Schwimmer. That's all you can think of is his character in Friends. But then he's so convic- convincing, such a good actor in other roles that you kind of forget about his Friends role right away. Yeah. I, I so, did. In, uh, it's the mark in of the a good OJ actor, thing. I guess. Yeah. When I was watching it, I, I wasn't thinking about Ross, really. Right. Um, because he didn't play that character. He didn't play like the goofy, nervous, anxious character mm-hmm. all the time. He was he was much yeah. more serious, much more sentimental. A really, really, honestly, a really good friend. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. he he played the he played the best friend perfectly. Yeah, if you guys haven't checked that out. But who's your yeah, favorite so, from the group here? Ooh man, um, man go. I don't know. I, I I guess George Washington, pretty important. George Washington character, I guess. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he's your gotta love, gotta love Steve Irwin, mate. Gotta love right, Steve I, I gotta go Steve Irwin, man. It's just so much of my childhood spent watching his shows and watching him on talk shows on like Maury and. Montel and Oprah and all that shit. I used to love when Steve yeah. Irwin was on there. Yeah. And also, Rest what was peace. the other guy? What was the other guy that used to bring on animals all the time on shows? Oh, God, I feel so stupid not remembering. The guy that got outshined by Steve Irwin? I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only time you bring him fitting. up. You're like, remember that other Steve Irwin guy that yeah, wasn't as cool as Steve guy? Irwin? He used to come on shows. Jack Hanna. Yeah. Is it Jack Hanna? Jack Hanna. Yeah, he he did bring uh-huh. on animals. He brought on, he would always bring on like hawks and shit, you know, on yeah, the like yeah, late yeah. night shows and yeah, and reptiles. He he had the reptiles, reptiles too. But I mean, he wasn't wrestling no gators like Steve was. Not in the wild, right? No, nah, no. Nah. Steve was Steve was on the front lines out there. Yeah, crazy adventurous soul. Rest in peace. Yeah. I'm just All always right. I'm just always like I laugh to myself when I, humans how we just are able to make any animal our bitch in a way. <laughs> yeah. Sounds rude, but like you know, like we right. top of the food chain animals, and we've got them like Jack Hanna's bringing them onto the night show, and they're like do, performing for him and shit. And it's just like, hey, that's amazing. that's how humans do, apparently. Humans just make the world adapt to them. We're just like, yeah, yeah, I'm a, the elephant. I'm gonna teach you tricks, and I'm gonna ride you, and you're just gonna deal with that, right? <laughs> you're just gonna deal with that. I don't yeah, care well, how big they you are. Squash us like a bug, you know? <laughs> yeah. What about these people that like keep tigers? And freaking yeah. lions as pets and shit. It's like, no way. No way, man. Yeah. It just takes one time where you forget to feed them. You know, imagine, you know how your house we cat... We had this like, whole conversation on the yeah. Tiger King episode on Patreon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want I'm this sure conversation, we just go listen to that. Oh, let's yeah, get back I'm to sure, the story. Sure. Yeah, let's get back to the story, man. You're trying to get one start out here. Right. Okay. 
So Arliss Perry, born in 1955, she was born in Linton, North Dakota, and was the youngest of three children to devout Christians Marvin and Jean. In 1963, the family relocated to Bismarck, North Dakota, where they ran an automotive company called Dykema Standard. Um, and Arliss would attend Bismarck High School, where she was on the cheerleading squad and was quite popular. However, she never lost sight of her religious views that had been instilled in her by her parents. She remained extremely um, religious and... yeah. Um, she would pray on a daily basis, and she would try to convert people who were lost, in her opinion, you know, in her view, right, uh, who right. had lost sight of God and religion. She would try to convert them, and that plays a role in the conspiracy later on. There's there's thought that maybe she tried to convert the wrong people. That's and yes. That's that's why this was done to her. I could see that. Uh, I could see that. She was active in church activities and always uh, saw the best in people. On the weekends, she taught Sunday school and worked for Young Life. We've talked about Young Life in the we past. We have. That's like a youth organization <clears throat> program yeah. or whatnot. Yeah. She was also a member of the FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And it was through the FCA that she met and fell in love with a fellow member named Bruce Perry, who had set records in track and field in the 100 and 220-yard sprints. Um, and they would become high school sweethearts and go on to get married. Um, in 1973, Bruce and Arliss graduated high school, and Bruce was accepted into Stanford and enrolled as a pre-med student. So wow. he, his his uh, abilities on the uh, you know uh, on in track and field I think helped him get a scholarship to Stanford. Right, um, but he must have been he must have been pretty good academically as he well. Was, he was obviously very smart as well, yeah, yeah. enrolling in pre-med. Um, and Arliss would remain in Bismarck at, and attend junior college while working as a receptionist at a dental office and the dental office she worked at was actually Bruce's father's dental office. So she was still connected to to Bruce, still, still with Bruce, they were they were dealing with the uh, long distance relationship for now, right? Until May of 1974, when Bruce would return to Bismarck, North Dakota, and propose to Arliss. It says a lot about their the strength of their relationship that he went off to college so far away, you know. And I was still, about to say in California at that, yeah, and still came back to propose to her, and with the intent of bringing her back to California with him. Um, her family was not very excited about this you know, finding out that she was going to be taken away to California, but they also liked Bruce and, you know, wanted right. the best for their daughter. And so the wedding would be held in August of that year, 1974. And uh, in September, Arliss took the long road trip to California with Bruce, where she would later meet her fate, unfortunately. That's why we were covering this case. They would move right. into an apartment complex on Stanford campus that was designed for young married couples. That's pretty cool. Like that's that is cool. Most colleges actually have married dorms. They just don't really advertise them. Um, that's what I'm sure appreciated for those young married couples, right? That you're not next door to the. I imagine most dorms are just party central, right? You right. Know, just young but, single people getting it on and playing beer pong, and you're a married couple trying to trying to focus on your together. studies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> sure. Trying to do the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what sucks though? What I found out when I went to college. Is that uh they have married dorms, Your but mom they goes don't to have college. they don't have married with children dorms. <laughs> oh right. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter was born when I was a junior in high school, so I had to live off campus anyway, and that sucked. Cause when you live off campus, you got no meal cards. You know what I'm saying? You got no right. you don't really have all the access to everyone who yeah. lives on like everyone that lives on campus. You know, your your dorm key also provides you all access to all sorts of other things. And I don't things. know how how close you were to the college, but also just having to get in your car and leave. I, well I was than I just was walk to your dorm. Or I whatever. was across the I was across a highway. So it was like a five or six lane highway and they had a 
where the apartment complex was that I lived in, and they had like a, a bridge that walked over, you mm-hmm. know, that you could walk over, but it was still a long walk. So probably uh, a lot of other ride. young college student parents there too, huh? Like you? Uh, actually, most of the apartment we lived in was just people babies. who people who wanted to live off of campus so they could party all the time. <laughs> it was awful. Uh, okay, <laughs> it was like the worst place for us to live. My poor daughter. <laughs> like, oh my god. Those who couldn't abide by the college rules. Yeah, pretty much. It was like every night there was there was like a screen set up in the parking lot. People are like playing Madden and just drinking and fucking loud oh, music yeah. constantly. That sounds like my type of party. Right. <laughs> it was. I mean, it would have been I fun. Like that kind of party. If I didn't have a six month old, you know what I'm saying. But yeah. uh, but yeah, it was it was pretty crazy experience. <clears throat> but yeah. we thought we was going to be able to live in married dorms, but we got we got surprised. Okay, so yeah, in the fall of 1974, uh, Bruce and Arliss they move into their complex uh, that was designed for young married couples. As Bruce began his sophomore year, and Arliss would have a hard time adjusting initially to her new life. She obviously had a whole network uh, in North Dakota and right. her family and friends, and now she was. Uh, alone and isolated because Bruce obviously pre-med is going to be very taxing you know he's going to be gone all day dealing with studies and when he gets home he's going to have studies he has to work on um and yeah she hadn't met anybody out there yet um and she wrote a a letter home around this time quote friends are hard to find here many times I've been tempted to go knocking on doors asking if anyone needs a friend but I guess we just have to appreciate each other yeah it's not like you could jump on Facebook groups and find like new people in Stanford you You had to literally go out and meet People right, it's things. 1974. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no forums, there's no, there's no Twitter, no Instagram. You can't, you can't link up. I can only and imagine she, she would. She was frequently going on walks alone, even late at night. Um, Bruce warned her about this on several occasions. She would just walk to the church, right across campus, and and go pray. The, the church would be open till midnight. It plays a huge role in this case, obviously. Well, church, she, from where she about. was from, you know, in the small town and being so established there and being a big part of it, she just everybody she knowing her to, as well. Yeah, everyone knew her. From. She wasn't she wasn't concerned about this. Her family was business owners in the town, you know, had an established and they, and car dealership. We mentioned also how she saw the best in everyone and Yes. You know, had well, these strong religious views. Maybe she felt God would protect her. Exactly. Uh, for sure. <laughs> That's a pretty safe bet that she felt mm-hmm. that God was on her side. And he would give her the strength to do what she wanted to do. And as long as she was living her life for him, he would protect mm-hmm. her for any, from anything, yeah. you know? Mm. So things would start getting better for Arliss when she became a member of the Stanford Church and got a job as a receptionist at, the, at a Palo Alto law firm. Um, Arliss would often take walks to the church alone at night to pray, as we had mentioned, and Bruce was warning her uh, that this wasn't safe. And it was a little bit of foreshadowing on his part when on the night of October 12th, 1974, Bruce would agree to go to, uh, with Arliss to mail some letters to her family. And as Arliss and Bruce were walking across campus, they got into a minor argument about pressure in her, her car tire. Kind of a silly thing to argue about, but that's being in a relationship for you. A lot that's of those how it goes. A lot of extra arguments are the most mundane shit. Oh, yeah. But they're already, they're already on edge, especially Arliss. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So every little thing going to feel like an inconvenience i've heard some conspiracy involving this aspect of it too some say that she caused an argument intentionally because she wanted to go to the church alone because she was meeting someone there who with whom she may have been trying to convert and Ah. then we know what happens from there but yeah some believe that she intentionally started this fight so that bruce would let her go to the church alone oh okay that's a possibility it's a possibility so 
Arliss would decide to walk home so she could stop at the Stanford Mem- Memorial Church and pray, something she did on a nightly basis. This was Columbus Day, and the campus was very busy that night with rowdy people milling about and playing loud music. Bruce would go home and wait for Arliss, um, and he was expecting her back maybe a little bit after midnight because the church was open until midnight. Uh, but when she hadn't returned by 1230, Bruce got worried and went to the church to look for her. He found the church locked and looked all over campus before going home. So kind of bizarre that she, you know, where, where would she have gone after leaving the church? Was she still that upset that she wasn't ready to come home? But it's also extremely late. Where would she go from here? She doesn't have many friends, if any at all. Right. She so doesn't know the area. She's, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge red flag there. Mm-hmm. Then when she hadn't been uh, made it home by 3 a.m., he became worried enough that he called the police telling him that he thought she may have been locked inside the church by mistake. So if she was kneeling down praying and whatever security came and and just took a glance inside the church and locked it up, she could have easily been locked in there. I could see why he would think something like that could happen. Absolutely. So police would respond and they would check the building. Uh, They would check the church uh, at a a little bit after 3 a.m. and they would find everything to be locked up. Um, and they figured Arliss would return home after she calmed down. So they had heard, you know, from Bruce that they had been in a bit of an argument and that was their reasoning for, you know, thinking maybe she just didn't want to come home yet. Right. Right. And that's, and you uh, can kind of understand that too. Yeah. I mean, you know it's I mean? still, that's... she just went missing just a, you know, a couple hours prior. Right. She is an adult. There was an <laughs> argument that had occurred. There was no reason to believe any foul play had happened yet. Right. Then... The next morning at 5.45 a.m. on October 13th, 1974, security guard Stephen Crawford arrived at the church to open it for the day, and he would find just an absolute macabre scene um, inside the church. He mm-hmm. found the rear door unlocked. It had been forced uh, open from the inside, so somebody had been inside the church while it was locked and forced their way out of it following that. The, he would find... Uh, he was a former police, uh, Stanford police officer, by the way, but he would find Arliss's body near the altar, her head underneath the first pew. Arliss was face up, her hands folded across her chest. Naked from the waist down, she had been stabbed in the back of her head with an ice pick that pen- penetrated her brain. The right. handle that was broken off. that wasn't obvious at the beginning they, because the handle was broken off. You know, so they yeah. didn't even know that until the autopsy. And also, her head was under the pew as well, so maybe that made it hard to spot that. Oh, for sure. A piece of the ice pick sticking out. Right. Um, yeah, and as you said, the handle was broken off, and it was it was gone. The perpetrator had apparently taken the handle with them when they left. Right. She had been violated with a three-foot-long altar candle. It was, it was actually mm-hmm. uh, in her vagina. Another altar candle had been placed between her breast, and her jeans were placed across her legs in a diamond pattern. And there was also a stain on her pants as well as um, semen found on a kneeling pillow near her body. And a partial palm print would be found on one of the candles as well. So they have some DNA. Now, it's a little early to be doing DNA comparisons, but right. they, they would store the DNA. But they do um, have the, the palm semen, print. And they have the palm print as well. Um, and at this point, you know, the, the police have found this horrific murder inside this church. And the first place you're going to go is obviously the person closest to them, the last person seen with them, the boyfriend who lives on the campus with her. Right. They would go to... Bruce Perry's apartment, and Bruce would open the door wearing a blood-covered shirt. Dope. Not a good look. Awkward. Not a good look. Yeah. Explain almost that, so. Fella. I was almost so blatant that you're like, in a way, I'm like thinking like this couldn't be him because it's like who would be that stupid? Who would be that stupid? Right. <laughs> open a door with a bloody shirt on when you're. 
if you knew you just murdered your girlfriend, right, you know, right, like, right, and you're the one who reported her to the to the police missing, yeah, you couldn't be that the, stupid, yeah. could you? You couldn't yeah. be. No. Um, he told the police that he had a bloody nose and that he had gotten gotten them often during high anxiety. Police did okay. not tell Bruce that Arliss had been found dead. They asked him to come into the police station to file a missing persons report, and this is their way of getting him in there to see if they can get him to crack. You know. Oh, yeah. Knowing okay. stuff that he doesn't know they know. Yeah, they're going to throw At him the, on the lie detector test, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. At the station, Bruce was questioned for two hours and asked if Arliss was having an affair or had gotten pregnant and if he lashed out of, out at her and had gone too far and killed her. That's quite a ways to go, you know. That's quite a stretch, I suppose. Yeah. You know, you find out your, your girlfriend's pregnant and you put an ice pick in her brain and then arrange her in a almost demonic fashion within a right. church. That's with <laughs> with no past history of criminal activity yeah. at all. Yeah, I don't yeah. think this is your first Life's murder. looking good. You're at pre-med and Stanford and although high-level athlete. and Although, on the other hand, it does look like a crime of passion. Yes. You know? Well, kind of. Yeah. It looks like a, pre- like a meticulously staged type of, it's, I don't know, almost anti-Christ type of fashion to this. Yeah, yeah. Especially with the way the pants were placed, right? Some people said yeah, it kind of fashion. Kind of uh, exemplified like a Freemason type logo, and then the candle between the breasts as well. Yes, arms arms folded across. Very, very the, strange. The killer took time to to uh, stage this scene a bit. Yes, whoever whoever did this was with her for a good amount of time. I'd say. Whereas, like, yeah, whereas like a crime of passion, like you find out your girlfriend's cheating on you. I don't think you stage this whole thing like that. It's not standard. Like I, I got upset and I, I went too far because I got so mad at her type of thing. This is right. Seems different. Yeah, absolutely. So while at the station being questioned, Bruce would vehemently deny any wrongdoing and repeatedly asked, "Where's my wife?" Still not knowing that she had been murdered yet. Bruce volunteered to do a polygraph, and only after he passed the polygraph did the police tell him that Arliss was found murdered. DNA mm-hmm. testing uh, at this point was not yet available in criminal. Uh, in, in the criminal world, so they would hold the DNA for later use. Right, um, right. The print from the candle, however, did not match Bruce Perry or the security guard who had found our list, Stephen Crawford. So seemingly, and that's their someone only two suspects right now. Unrelated. Yep. Yeah. There had been people in that church. There had been several other people in the church with Arliss that but, night who had seen her praying. But check this out. I mean, these candles were probably lit for every service, and somebody probably grabbed the candle, lit it, and then maybe that was the candle they used to light other candles. You know, I mean, somebody could have handled these candles yes. on a weekly basis. You know, you're going to have multiple yeah. palm prints on here. I think. I, yeah, I and I didn't hear it's... whether they, you know, whether they checked like the the priest or you know whoever was running services at this church if they checked. Right. I feel like they would be the ones setting up the candles and doing the kind of the cosmetic look of the church stuff not exactly not like maybe guard. someone yeah maybe or maybe someone who cleans the church you know maybe mm-hmm. they have someone who comes in regularly and cleans and sets up the candles and all that stuff i mean it'd be nice to eliminate that palm print you know what i'm saying yeah as far as i know they never got a match on that I, on yeah that palm i couldn't print find on one either yeah candle so and i don't know how good of a print it was how you know how much if it would be tough to match regardless and you are talking partial... mid-1970s yeah, you're yeah. talking 74 still, so I don't know how good the technology to pull the print was anyways. I think you probably still had people looking at the through the glass, the little eyeglass thing to compare it manually uh, yeah. that way as opposed <laughs> to like a computer system doing it. Right, right. Yeah, probably. 
But if they kept it on record, then they, I'm sure, in the later years, could have had it uh, matched or have it examined through a computer. Right, right. So it was at the law firm's office where she was visited by a mystery guest the day before she was killed. The police would find out Arliss had had a visitor to her work the day prior. Um, an appearance that continues to puzzle those who attempted to solve the crime. Witness to, witnesses that had observed this man talking to Arliss described him as a man in his early 20s who was five foot ten, wore jeans, a plaid shirt, and had blonde curly hair of normal length. Co-workers reported that Perry seemed upset by the visitor who they thought was her husband. However, they would find out later one of her co-workers went to her funeral and met Bruce Perry there, her boyfriend, right. and realized, holy shit, this is not the guy that she was talking to. She had thought all along, like, oh, it must be Bruce. Right. And, and then this so information that was, became that much more important. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of after-the-fact shit uh, in this mm-hmm. case where it's like, damn, if that, if that witness would have known at that time, this, you know, the police could have made a lot better a lot better jump on this case. Yeah. But. So the, the identity of that visitor remains unknown to this day. And it's just another thing that adds to the speculation and conspiracy around this case. Doesn't it? So because she, because allegedly she didn't know anybody. So who right. who does she know well enough to have an argument with in public? Or did this man just come in and now she was the receptionist. So maybe this man was coming in making some type of demand or maybe he saw her and was hitting on her or whatever and she turned him down. Um I don't know. You know what? It's also very bizarre, and it's not in the crime line, but I had read it somewhere. Yeah. Was that there was a Bruce D. Perry at Stanford in the pre-med program who was not Bruce Perry, Arliss's boyfriend. He was registered in the phone directory, and it it actually, Arliss's mother and her best friend had both called that number thinking it was Bruce Perry's phone to the apartment where Arliss lived, and a different person had answered, a different man who was supposedly named Bruce Perry, Bruce, Bruce D. Perry, and was in Stanford Whoa. pre-med, just like the Bruce that Arliss was dating. Very now, bizarre. Like, what are the odds of that, you know? Now, there's no connection there, right, other than just the, the same name. It's just It just caused a lot of confusion, right? Yes, yes. Okay. All right. Did they ever just check that guy out? Just adds more weirdness. Just adds more weirdness to the case. I know All I does. heard was what I just told you. I don't know how much further that went if they confirmed there actually was another Bruce Perry that was in the pre-med program at the same time. That is so And confusing. had just gotten married as well. Supposedly had just oh, gotten married yeah. as well. Well, yeah, I mean, that's so a popular many age. weird connections. Married. Yeah. So, obviously, this is in the early uh, satanic panic days. You know, this was right around the time of... Uh, Good old Charlie over there, Charles Manson, and his his Manson murders. Um, and so the police initially suspected a ritual, possibly satanic element. The man, the Manson family had just rampaged through Southern California just five years before. So, and I mean, I think they have reason to believe for this is not they're not stretching here to believe this. This it happened in a church, and she was, you know, pl- yeah, arranged I- in such a way that it was. Had a satanic element, in my opinion. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, this is not a stretch at all. And then, you know, he was... So many people were connected to the Manson family, and you don't know... He obviously still had followers out there at this time. Yeah. And how far are they willing to go? And like you said, a crime of this nature seems exactly what they would be into. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the randomness of it. Yeah. And so there was actually three other young women who had been killed... Uh, on or around the Stanford campus, um, 
and there was talks initially that this was another victim of this this criminal. Um, they these date these previous killings had dated back to February of 1973, and they would later be attributed to John Gautreaux after good old genealogy would get him captured uh, much later. But they, the police initially didn't suspect that this was the workings of this same criminal because there was there was not a lot uh, matching as far as M.O., um, the way that she was killed. Uh, these other vi- three girls were strangled, and right. there was no weapons used, and... There was just they they just didn't believe that it was connected. But and Goutreau would Goutreau uh, sexually assaulted his victims as well. Yeah, and I know I know that um, Arliss was assaulted with a candlestick, but I don't think she was raped. Right. At least they, there they was didn't say semen was found on the pillow next to her near her. But yeah. yeah, but not. I don't think there was uh, the perpetrator's DNA in her. So right, he obviously masturbated or something at the scene, but not not raping her. Which yeah. seems off base for Gautreaux. Mm-hmm. So, uh, at least seven people were in the Stanford Memorial Church during the night of October twelfth, and in the morning of October thirteenth, among them were Bruce Perry, Stephen Crawford, and others that were identified. However, a seventh person would not be identified. A passerby said a young man was about to enter the church around midnight. He had a sandy-colored hair and was not wearing a watch. Uh, was of medium build and stood about five foot ten. That's weird that he said he's not wearing a watch. I know. I thought the same thing. I'm like, that's. I guess watches is that were... common for men to wear a watch at the time that it's I actually so. notable that they're not wearing one? Because nowadays it's notable if you are wearing a watch. I think. Yes. Yes, it is because everyone has a phone. But, I was you say, know, yeah, we have this amazing thing in our pocket called an iPhone. So <laughs> yeah, they didn't have that then, so they they really needed to know what time it was. So yeah. like, yeah, they, he's definitely wearing a watch. Like my dad, still to this day, he don't he don't he wakes up, he puts on a watch. She just wears yeah. a watch every damn day, no matter what. Yeah. Uh, I can't do I, it. <laughs> I feel yeah. so restricted. I feel like the genie on Aladdin. Like, ah, I got to get out of here. <laughs> um, so some believed that Arliss Perry was a victim of Ted Bundy. Um, nah. For obvious reasons, he had been all over the, the Pacific Northwest around that right. time. and However, he would have a solid alibi for the time of the murder. He, was, he had a receipt that proved he was gassing up his car in a different state at the time. I yeah, think I think he was, he was like all the way Oregon in Utah. He was in Utah. Oh, was he in Utah? Yeah. Yeah. He so, was out there in Utah. Not a lot of leads for the police to go on here. You know, the, the print not matching the two uh, most likable or most likely suspects, the boyfriend and the security guard, and, you know, not getting much help elsewhere. Um, they, right. The case would go cold. Uh, now for it's five years, to... they wouldn't have any connection to this case, nothing to work with. Right. Now it's time to start... Uh... Start drawing straws, get the conspiracies going, right? Let's because start up the conspiracy machine. We got to. Because <laughs> five years after this, after the murder in 1979, Arliss Perry's name would pop up in a shocking manner. Let's give a little background to the way that it popped up. In 1977, in August, David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the son of Sam, would be arrested after his reign of terror over the New York area. Um a New York reporter named Maury Terry had become obsessed with the Son of Sam murders. That's what this whole docuseries on Netflix, Sons of Sam, is about. Yes. It's about Maury Terry, his obsession with uh, the Son of Sam, David Berkowitz, it's, uh, and him tying all these connections between Berkowitz and cults involving the children, Charles Manson, the process from England. Um, he's convinced and... Berkowitz even admitted it in an interview with him that he was not working alone on these murders in New York at the time. Right. Um, he was a part of, you know, a, 
a big conspiracy going on to create chaos, you know, all over the world. They these these cults like the process. They wanted to create chaos, and by doing so, you know, you saw what Charles Manson was doing. It's very similar, you know, killing yeah. for just to freak everyone out, and that's exactly what fear. Berkowitz was, yeah. you know, crimes did. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so Maury Terry, um, he like David had lived in Yonkers, less than a mile away from David Berkowitz's apartment. Um, and he had studied the Son of Sam letters to police and had deciphered many of the clues. Maury believed that the Son of Sam was not working alone. He discovered links between Son of Sam and multiple cults across the U.S. He Some, some of the things he deciphered from the letters were the John Wheaties car um, mentioned in the letter. Mm-hmm. He tied that to the Carr brothers who had lived very close by in Yonkers to David Berkowitz. They had a house literally almost like a stone's throw away from David Berkowitz's apartment. Yeah, too close. Um, That's too yeah. close to be a coincidence. And then John John Wheaties' car, his his middle name was Wheat. So they yes. called him Wheaties. And, I mean, that's not even yeah, a stretch. And Sam, <laughs> I think John Wheaties, John, John Carr had a sister who was a daughter of Sam, whose name was like Wheaties, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow. So They really liked their Weird Wheaties. connections. Weird connections to the cars. Obviously, him calling himself son of Sam... Um, the father of the Carr brothers was Sam Carr, who was a bizarre man who was known to be very brutal to his sons. There was mentions in the letters of, you know, Sam, when he gets angry, he beats his kids and he keeps those locked in the attic. There was also speculation that Sam had done that prior to even these letters being, people knew that Sam locked his kids in the attic uh, right. on Wicker Street, which was mentioned in the letters as well. Wicker was mentioned. The yep. Cars lived on Wicker Street. Um, there was mentions to the children in the letters, which was Manson's cult. There was mentions to the gutters, which was what Untermeyer Park at the time was known by, which was this creepy little park in between um, Berkowitz's apartment and the car's house, this right. park that had like these weird stone structures in them. And there was all kinds of uh, occultist writings and drawings on the walls in there when um, when Maury Terry would go down there to, uh, to look around and they would actually find like dogs that had been killed in that park. Um, one missing their e- missing its ear. So yeah, many there was a lot a lot about things. dogs, and Sam Carr always had dogs, especially like it yes. seemed like he always had black labs. Of course, the, the you know, black lab Harvey. Oh, Harvey. Yep. Yep. <laughs> oh, Harvey, the most famous. But uh, yeah, just too many pieces were fitting here, man. Mm-hmm. That's. Yep. I don't. It's just I, I see why Maury, uh, the reporter, gets so frustrated and why he became so obsessed with this. He's like, can nobody else see this? Yeah, it just yeah, it just seems seems so obvious. It really does. I think it, terrifying. Part of his obsession stemmed from the fact that he lived so close to. He lived less than a mile from David Berkowitz's apartment from the cars. Yeah. This is some an area he knew really well, and he knew that weird shit had been going on in Untermyer Park for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he took it um, personal. He's like, not in my town, you know, not in my city, because my city's still not safe because you didn't get everybody. Yep. You know. I can see and then, that. of course, uh, Sam Carr would disappear for a while after David Berkowitz's arrest. Then things just started getting more weird and confirming uh, Maury Terry's uh, beliefs. Um, the Carr brothers would both die under extremely suspicious circumstances in the years following Berkowitz's arrest. John Carr's body turned up in Minot, North Dakota, murdered from a gunshot wound to the head. Mm. How did he get all the way would, in the Dakotas? You know, he was uh, he was on work, he was on a military base at the time in Minot, North Dakota. But it's just crazy the ties to North Dakota to this case right? as well. You know, it's weird it's that like it a went center back point to North of this Dakota. whole thing. That's obviously where Arliss 
uh, grew up was in North Dakota. Uh-huh. Um, and then John Carr's found murdered in North Dakota, a different yeah. town, but still very bizarre. Still, uh, Yeah. I mean, how many times have we mentioned North Dakota on this entire podcast? Yep. Like and a handful we're going to mention times, it more. <laughs> Meanwhile, John Carr's brother, Michael Carr, another son of Sam, died in a bizarre car crash in which he had hit a pole head-on while traveling at speeds nearing 90 miles an hour. There were scrapes on the side of the car that suggested that he'd been run off the road. So mm, Possibly, or he committed suicide. Yeah. You know? I don't know. It's just... It's, uh, no, they were probably both killed, right? I mean, yes, if, that's if, my if belief. The, the older brother was shot in the head, yeah, Michael Carr, yeah, he was probably run off the road and killed as well. Probably trying to evade someone. Mm-hmm. 90 miles an hour. Mm, that'll do it. Yeah. So Maury did his best to report the, his findings and evidence of the Son of Sam slash cult connections to the public, but he got no help from the NYPD, who was more happy more than happy to have gotten their guy. Um, careers were saved and boosted after the Berkowitz arrest. We'd mentioned all the pressure that was on the New York police oh, yeah. to catch this guy who was reigning terror over their city. And when they caught Berkowitz, they were more than happy to believe his story in which he had acted alone, that he was hearing this dog tell him you know, to kill. Right. Uh, they, they just wanted to believe they'd caught a crazy man who was out doing this on his own. They didn't and- want to hear anything about any cult connections or... And Berkowitz was was playing along. He was he was doing exactly what they wanted him to do. I mean, he was confessing. He was he was being all creepy and smirky in front of the press. Like he was just mm-hmm. he just fit that package so perfectly. When you saw him, he was a loner. He was a quiet person. Um, you know, didn't have much success with women, and so they they were like, oh, he just fits all. He just fits the bill. He's he's obviously a serial killer. He's lashing out against society because he's failed at life. And whatnot, and really, I don't think it was in reality. I don't think it was any of that. I think he was just a simple-minded person who got influenced by the wrong people at the right time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it just took over his life. I mean, he was only 23 years old. Right. And do you know what's crazy is the different when I think about it, the differences in the the letters that supposedly David Berkowitz had written to the police, taunting them, were yeah. just madness, crazy font. Um, misspellings, uh, well, just some of bizarre them. writing style. But then when he wrote, he would end up writing letters to Maury Terry. Um, he would write a letter to the North Dakota police captain. We'll get to that. Yeah. And these letters were very well written. Like, I was about to say. Like a very well-spoken, well, you know, like someone who's educated. These are very well-written letters. Nothing like the Son of Sam letters to New, to the New York right. police. And then you even mentioned the font. Even the way that yeah. the the... the the, the letters that were structured better were even written better. This, the, they were still written in all caps, but the way yeah. that every single letter was written, I was like, man, that's actually a pretty cool handwriting. I was like, right. this, these letters... All uppercase look, with like bizarre slants on the letters. Yeah, the, yeah all, the, all the slants, like the top of a T or whatever, slants upwards. Um, oh, and by but, the way, some of the, draw, the, the uh, satanic uh, symbols and drawings that were done in those letters were also known to be drawn on a regular basis by John Carr. Everyone that knew John Carr said that he he drew those with like the male and female symbol in them. Oh, he was yes, known to yes. draw those. He would draw them in telephone books and shit all the time. All of his friends said. Oh wow! So was he? It makes you wonder. Was John Carr the one writing these letters to the police? Well, I, I think it was John Carr. Anyways, I feel like if if somebody was like, you have to ma- you have to make a decision. Who do you think it was? I'd be like, it's John Carr. Not the first one. The the one the first one that's written. All weird, and the the, mm-hmm. the grammar is off. There's misspellings. I think that was David, um, yeah, or possibly one of the car sons. Mm-hmm. But I do believe 
the the remit the letters after that were done by someone with a lot more life experience, someone who's a lot has a much better understanding of what they're trying to do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just the riddles and everything, the way it all fit together, the punctuation, it was just written too neatly. Way too neatly. Yeah. So in 1979, Maury would get a letter from David Berkowitz. He told Maury that Maury was right, that he had been a part of a cult involving the cars, that he was not acting alone on those murders. It was a you know typically a group of three to five men that were uh, out on those nights, and they would park on different streets, and it was a whole thing. It wasn't just him going out and just randomly shooting people in their cars. He also said, however, that the public would never believe him, no matter how much evidence he presented, and that couldn't have ended up to be more true, because <laughs> no matter how much evidence Maury presented endlessly yeah. to the public, the, the New York police would not hear it. They would squash his theories over and over again and cause right. doubt in the, in the public. Um, and see, and, Berkowitz yeah. knew this because he probably already went down this road. He probably already, at a certain point, was like, okay, I got to tell you guys the truth. You know, once he was away from that family long enough to get out yeah. from underneath that thumb of Sam Carr or whoever the whoever the mastermind is, he, he probably started thinking clear again. He was like, I got to tell these guys what happened to me. And yeah. they just weren't hearing it. And they and were so, like, whatever, you're trying to manipulate us, Mr. Serial Killer. Exactly. Exactly. And so Berkowitz is like, they're not going to listen to you. I mean, they won't listen to me, and I was there. I have hard right. evidence, and they won't listen to me. So why would yeah. they listen to some guy who's on the outside who's just obsessed with the case? What's up, Creepers? Yeah. Let me tell you about a new way to look dope and still save money. It's a new app called Poshmark. It's a free app where you can easily clean out your closet and sell items for cash. And there are tons of cool brands on there, like Lululemon, Nike, Louis Vuitton, Jordan, Adidas all for up to 70% off. And what's cool? If you're new to Poshmark, you can use the referral code TRUECRIMEGUYS with no spaces, and you can get $10 off your first purchase. And as I alluded to earlier, you can clean out your closet and be a seller on Poshmark as well. When you make a sale, Poshmark sends you an email with the shipping label. You tape it to the box, drop it at the post office, or schedule a pickup. Boom, you're done. It's actually a really cool idea because as you're selling your old things, you can then use that money in your Poshmark account to buy new things, right? Out with the old, in with the new. It's pretty dope. It's like, I'm not using real money. I'm just trading my things. Pretty amazing. And like I said, because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can get $10 off your first purchase. Just enter the invite code TRUECRIMEGUYS with no spaces, just like our logo, when you sign up. That's invite code TRUECRIMEGUYS. Now, you may be wondering how this all connects to Arliss Perry. Why are we going down this, this weird conspiracy rabbit hole about David Berkowitz? And you'll, you'll see now, because around this time that he sends the letter to Maury Terry, David Berkowitz also says, sends a letter to the deputy sheriff in Minot, North Dakota, where John Carr had been murdered. Um, he gets a letter, and actually it's kind of more like a package that he gets, uh, included a book titled The Anatomy of Witchcraft. Within this book that Berkowitz had sent to the deputy sheriff, inside that book was written in pen on one of the pages on a random page that said, quote, Arliss Perry hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to, Cal followed to California, Stanford University. And suddenly Arliss Perry, whose murder has gone cold, who hasn't, police have not been able to get a solid lead on in over five years, all of a sudden her name pops up and connected to, to, to David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Right. And this opens up a whole can of worms here. This, all this conspiracy 
comes out of that. Um, obviously, it conne- is, connects to... Go now ahead. This, I was just going to say, this is five years after the murder. So plenty yeah. of information is out there about this yes, murder. Yes, Berkowitz so could have read about Arliss Perry's murder yes. while he was in prison and just for fun connected himself to it. Right. Just wanted to play devil's advocate there. No pun intended. Yes. No, we have to consider that. I mean, serial yeah. killers, they do they do play mind games. They do get bored sitting in prison, and they like to fuck with people, and it gets them out of their cell, and they can go do interviews. And Right. You know, we know damn well. We've studied plenty of these guys. That, that is a strong consideration here. That's but, right. They might get some donuts and coffee and a conversation with somebody new, and that's, that's worth right. it to them. Yeah. Yeah. So Berkowitz, Charles Manson, and William Metz- Menser who uh, was uh, convicted of killing Hollywood producer Roy Radin. That's when this shit just gets real crazy. Roy Radin, who was murdered in in L.A., um, he was believed to have been killed because he was involved in these snuff films. There was talk that one of the Berkowitz murders was actually filmed, and it was going to be sold to Roy Roy Radin and other, you know, high, these these rich L.A. uh, producers and stuff that, they had this this kind of fetish for watching snuff um, videos. It right. was kind of a thing back in the day. Before the internet, people still wanted to see fucked up shit. This is like the pre-rotten.com days. You know, it's like the only way you could see someone get murdered is actually pay someone to go out and murder them and uh, oh, videotape man. it for you. Stuck yeah, stuff. I guess so. But I mean, you know, they had the dark magazines and stuff too. You remember like the magazines that Bundy would read? As a mm-hmm. kid, and Ramirez, uh, there were yes. there were stories of Ramirez getting these dark magazines that had yeah, like these they were, just horrible. They were basically uh, art, right? They were like, uh, uh, yeah, that's how they versions of it, right? That's kind of how they pushed it off. Is like this dark, almost like a anime or a comic book style, but it's it's, it's about all bondage murder. and yeah, exactly, yeah. BTK was really into those, right, growing up? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure a lot of the killers, <laughs> 60s, 70s, and 80s, were into those, man, because what other outlet did they have? It, it probably made them feel a little bit more normal. Yeah. So Berkowitz would later name at least one unidentified cult member from Minot as a participant in the killing spree. So that connects North Dakota yet again to all of this that's going on. It connects him, uh, someone from Minot to the Son of Sam killings in New York. Um, he said that he had been at a at, the, at a, a party which had members of the process cult and where he witnessed a man stand up and claim to know the person who killed Arliss Perry. Um, and there's more on the note about Arliss in the book. Um, this is Maury Terry asking the question, you know, why would he make it up? He had no motive, no reason. He confessed to three murders. He's not getting out. Why would he connect himself to the Arliss Perry murder? Right. Once again, I mean, we can say he's bored, he's in prison, <laughs> he likes toying with people. There's there's always that theory. Right. Um, Terry's investigation uh, also included a trip to Stanford where he retracted Perry's steps before her murder, uh, retraced Perry's steps. So he would you know, walk the church, walk the, the campus at Stanford, walk to the church where she had been murdered. He concluded that as many as four people were involved in the Perry murder, including Menser, um, who was involved in the... the the Roy Raiden murder, mm-hmm. and was a member of uh, the Process Church as well. And he was um, from Bismarck, North Dakota. Yes, yep. Connected so there's to another, North Dakota, where yeah. Arliss was from. Arliss was actually, that's where she lived, was Bismarck. So now you have a connection to her actual hometown. 
Yeah, Maury Terry close. said, Arliss most likely did something the group decided she had to die over. Quote, she might have heard something or seen something she shouldn't have. They may have feared that she would expose them. Or Terry speculates, Perry found some prominent Bismarck residents were involved in cult activity. Someone in Bismarck okayed this, and someone had the, the hooks to get help on the West Coast, he said. This was a pretty sophisticated operation. Wow. In, in 1987, Maury would release his book, The Ultimate Evil, an investigation into America's most dangerous satanic cult. Uh, that book would gain a lot of traction. It was a, a bestseller. He would get an exclusive interview with Berkowitz as well. This was the big moment. I think this occurred in the, the third or the fourth part of that docuseries on Netflix in which he sits down finally with Berkowitz to get answers. And Berkowitz gave him everything he wanted, except he kept it in such a vague ma manner. Like he was giving you know, two word answers, uh, one, two word answer, like everything Maury was throwing out there. People, the public, uh, thought that they he was just leading Berkowitz down this path. Like were these killings, uh, perpetrated, uh, on part of a cult, you know, uh, were these, were you alone in these killings and everything Berkowitz answered was exactly what Maury had speculated on. He said right. that he didn't act alone, that there was multiple people at these killings, um, that he was only the trigger man for a couple of them, that um, the, the Carr brothers were involved, that uh, John Carr had pulled the trigger on several of, several of these. Um, and so he, But he, once again, he just remained so vague that the public didn't believe him. I think and once he just, again, Maury was, was left afraid, in the dark. Though. <laughs> I think Berkowitz was afraid too. And then also yeah. his, how good Ashamed his as well. He didn't, he, was, he, he didn't seem like he wanted to relive those. You know, he didn't like talking because now he'd, he'd found God at this point while he was, he'd been in prison for many years and he'd become a, a born again Christian. And right. he seemed to have real remorse for what he had done at that point, but also who knows, because he was also a sick man who had been a part of this whole thing. who was a, a manipulative as well. So this whole case just, man, I don't know what to believe. I, I, I on one hand, I could just believe that Maury Terry was barking Obsessed. up the wrong tree that he wanted to believe all this stuff that and a lot of it was just you know a manifestation of his own crazy uh ties to all these letters and cults and maybe it was just a madman and berkowitz went out and killed on his own but i can't ignore all the connections to the cars no. like i just can't and the way that they got killed afterwards right it's just and why did sam leave right after david's arrest like yeah there's just so much there's so many questions there and, and I, with Arliss perry i just can't believe that we're going to get to you know the findings and and who supposedly perpetrated the crime against Arliss Perry, but I, I just still doesn't sit right with me. We'll get to that. Yeah, I can't wait. So Berkowitz also identified, uh, he recognized a man. So when, when Maury Terry sat down for this interview with him, he showed him some pictures. And within the pictures was a picture of a man from Bismarck, North Dakota, and Berkowitz uh, allegedly recognized the man and said that he was uh, he was involved in Arliss Perry's murder, and he was involved in the cults as well. Berkowitz identified the man uh, in the photograph as someone he had seen uh, and met at a cult meeting in Minot, North Dakota. And when he identified the man in the photograph, it confirmed Terry's suspicions that he may have been the visitor at the law firm the day before Perry was killed. That man with the blonde curly hair um, who had been seen talking to Arliss, who had Arliss upset at work, according to her coworkers. Right. You can't ignore that part of it either. You just can't. Like, why would her coworkers make that up? Seriously, you know, multiple coworkers, and they weren't yeah. like stressed about it. They they weren't in a tense situation. They just saw them arguing. Was like, okay, that's her husband. Whatever. They're having a marital dispute. Yeah. 
So why yeah. they didn't think nothing of it? So their recollection of it is probably pretty good. Yep. You know what I mean? I, I, yeah, that's they have absolutely no reason to make something like that up. All it's going to do is hurt. You know, if they make something like that, all it's going to do is hurt the chances of the real killer being discovered in this person that they you know, were friends with and co-workers of. Yeah. So. Exactly. There's just so many things about the Arliss Perry murder that just don't add up to me. Um, meanwhile, her case remained uh, cold as well. Um, obviously, police looked into the ties with the, the, the Berkowitz book and the, and the writings that she had been slain and stalked to California. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the case would remain open and routinely was reviewed as a cold case by the cold case unit of the Santa Clara County D- DA and Sheriff's Office. Um, and nothing would come about until 2004, uh, Bruce Perry, her husband, would submit a blood sample, which finally lifted all suspicions of him being the killer. Um, the blood on his shirt was, in fact, his blood from a bloody nose from right. his anxiety over Arliss being missing. Right. Um, and we wouldn't get a big break in the Arliss Perry case until 2018. That's ridiculous. If, uh, almost 40 years, over 40 years after her murder, uh, the police would make a connection in DNA um, thanks to the advances in DNA testing, uh, stuff was retested and linked 72-year-old uh, Stephen Crawford, who was the security guard at yep. uh, Stanford that night, who had found her at 5.45 a.m. allegedly. His DNA matched the crime scene, and law enforcement were zeroing in. So this was apparently the man who had done this to Arliss Perry. Um, cold yeah. case investigators knew now for sure that it was the work of the man who had, quote, found her, Longtime suspect Stephen Bla- Stephen Blake Crawford, who had been a police officer in Stanford prior to getting um, laid off and had gone to work at Stanford um, yeah. as a he security was, guard. He was very upset about that, though. He was very bitter. Yeah, we'll talk about, about getting uh, downgraded. Yeah, as he saw. so con- with conclusive DNA evidence in hand, they closed in to arrest Crawford on June twenty eighth, twenty eighteen. They showed up to his apartment. Um, Crawford knew officials had been actively pursuing the case and that he was a person of interest because they had previously talked to him and obviously he was the one who found Arliss. When officers knocked on his door that morning, the morning of June 28, 2018, with a search warrant in hand, Crawford was stalling. He um, was saying, you know, oh, I need to get dressed. And police officers were standing outside the door waiting, waiting. And he had this like window crack so you could hear him in there talking. He found it sounded very distressed. You can actually watch the body cam footage from this day. It's yeah. pretty haunting because uh, he would keep stalling, and the police actually had a key to his apartment from the um, from the uh, landlord. And they, at a certain point, say, "We're coming in um, to help you get dressed or whatever." And then you hear a gunshot go off, and mm-hmm. Crawford had k- killed himself. They would find um, police had to investigate the suicide while still preserving the scene for investigators to search the home for additional evidence inside Crawford's closet. Investigators found what they said was, quote, important papers. And they also found a book called The Ultimate Evil, which was a book about serial killers. And on the cover, coincidentally, was a picture of David Berkowitz. Well, The Ultimate Evil, that's Maury's book. That's Maury, Maury yeah. Terry's book. Right? So, oh, my God. It's so many connections here. Yeah. But what that's are the right. important papers? That's what, like, what the fuck? What are the important papers? Yes, that drives me nuts. What is that? Like, literally. <laughs> We kind of need to know that. It's yeah. it's crucial. I mean, I mean because these important papers are why he killed himself. Yeah. I mean, this is Was this he connected to the cult? That's that's what I can't like I just can't fathom that this security guard did this to a woman 
at, while at as, work, and then that was like that was it. Like he does this bizarre murder, right? An ice pick to the brain, uh, arranging the body in this manner. Right, and that's his only murder. Like the candle. This isn't the work. This isn't just yeah. a one-off crime here. Like I just don't. It doesn't sit right with me. Right now, this and, guy. This guy wasn't no angel, but he hadn't done anything violent like this before. Right. I know he had another crime where he stole a bunch of stuff from Stanford. Right. Once he got fired. Yeah. Let's talk about his background a little bit. Um, so Crawford was a U.S. Air Force veteran. He worked for the Stanford Department in 1971 as an armed police officer. In 1972, the new police chief began reorganizing the Stanford Police Department and took a serious look at uh, whether off many officers were qualified to carry guns. They were asked to reapply for their positions, and about three-quarters of the force did not make the cut, one of them being Crawford. They were offered Ooh. the option to become security guards, um, and he obviously held a grudge because he was downgraded from a police officer to a security guard. Uh, yeah, you just got um, cut from the team, man, after you already made it. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. Quote, he complained bitterly about it. He told friends he did not like what they were doing to him. However, he stayed on Stanford until 1976 uh, and found ways to ex exact revenge against the university. Quote, he began stealing stuff from offices, including a human skull, a walking cane given to university founder Leland, uh, Leland Stanford, and rare books. So he stole like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of valuable items oh, from dude. Stanford. He stole books from like the 16th century. Like he yes. wasn't taking just any any types of <laughs> shit. He was taking like one one of Artifacts, one copies basically. of <laughs> yeah. He yeah. stole hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of worth of stuff from Stanford. Yeah. Yeah, um the kicker was he went to a print down to a print shop and got a degree from Standard uh, Stanford as well. So he made up like a fake degree for himself using a blank <laughs> Stanford diploma. <laughs> That's kind of funny though. <laughs> right. He's like those calligraphy lessons gonna, are really going to come in handy. This you're going to downgrade me to a security guard, I'm at least getting a free diploma out of this. Right? <laughs> you set up a bitch. I'm hanging it on the wall, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, he would eventually be arrested for receipt of stolen property. Quote, he claimed he was mad at the university and the police department for treating him as a suspect in Perry's murder. Um, but the police didn't buy it. Crawford received a six-month suspended sentence. Um, and, and supposedly, you know, he would stay in the nearby area until he would be captured for... Arliss Perry's murder in 2018 when the DNA evidence linked him to it. But this just doesn't sit right with me. Like, I can't, no. I just can't buy that he worked alone, that the that it took them until 2018 to match the DNA at the crime scene to him. Um, yeah. What, what? I, the book thing in his closet doesn't, it, it, that that's not weird to me because he was in a way connected to Son of Sam through the Arliss Perry note in the book. And like, he would want to, wouldn't you be curious as to know what, what in that book, if you were mentioned, you know, the murder that you were connected to, the girl that you found in the church right, uh, was brought up in the Son of Sam murder. I would buy that book too, just to be like, what is going on here? But yeah, exactly. But what exactly. are the important papers? How does a, a person, I, studying all these years of true crime, I've never heard of a one-off murder like this where a guy does this and then doesn't do anything else and isn't caught until forty years later. Right, but but then again, if, at the other time, at the other on the other hand, there has to be a first, right? There has to be a first murder like this, I suppose. But and, I don't, and he was. I, he I was, get that he was frustrated with Stanford, but this is why this, take it out on this girl, right? You you do this like satanic murder uh, on a girl. Because you're upset at Stanford for downgrading you as security guard. No, and then no, you just I, I, I think hang out unrelated. for another forty years. I think the two murders are. I mean, I think the murder and then him being upset with Stanford are unrelated. Or maybe he was just a tool in the murder, right? Maybe he was a bystander. That's, maybe he was. That's there. my thing. I think much like David Berkowitz, I think he was. There, there was something bigger here that he was caught up in. Yeah. 
maybe he was there. Maybe he witnessed it. Maybe, I, I don't know, man. Who was the guy at her work the day before? We never got answers for that. Right. Dude, there's this just doesn't sit right with me. Doesn't sit with it. Just a time before right. security cameras is just fucking awful, isn't it? <laughs> it's like yeah, you know every real. law firm every law firm now has cameras everywhere if they're smart. So, yeah. oh man, it just it just sucks that there's no nobody has any idea who this guy was. But that does give a little weight that he wasn't from around there either. Maybe he was from North Dakota as well. Maybe he really did follow her all the way there. Maybe that's why they had that conversation as if she knew him. Maybe she was like, what are you doing here? You know what I mean? Who, like, this, you can't just follow me across the country. What the fuck are you doing here? Who, Crawford? No, whoever this visitor. That oh, visited, that person. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Whoever visited yes. her in the law office, maybe, he, maybe she really did know him from Bismarck. Yes. You know what yes. I'm saying? Maybe he was a part of uh, the process in Bismarck, and she had tried to, you know, she had heard about, you know, these dark forces in Bismarck, yes. and you know, tried to show them the light, and they they took this as a perfect example to, yeah, you know, fight as fight the, the lightness with darkness. Exactly, exactly, and a lot of the witnesses did say that she seemed to know the man, like they had some yeah. sort of personal relationship. I mean, why else would they mistake him for her husband? You know, I have you know to say, saying? we don't go down these satanic panic roads very often. We usually just go, oh, you know, the police just, of course, they connected it to satanic ritualists and all that stuff. Most this of the time, is on the it's other, Yeah, this is What's on the funny other is the it. police were denying it this time. Most of the time, they can't <laughs> wait to connect Satanism to everything. I know. Especially in this time period. Well, the But everything was, was just wrapped up in too neat of a bow for them. It was just yeah. like, okay, we got our guy, and that's that. You know, in both right. cases, in the case of Berkowitz and the Son of Sam murders, murders they were just happy to have that, you know, the the... Chaos ended and everybody, everybody got promotions and great job. We caught the worst killer in right. New York history. And you know, but and you, then when it comes to Arles Perry, they, it's just nice to get to wrap that case up 40 years later and go, okay, we got a match to Crawford, and that's that. Yeah, no doubt. Now, as far as this case, I don't know is how the police tension was. I'm sure they had a lot of a lot of pressure on them. But in New York, it's like you can almost understand. I mean, it was it was nicknamed Fear City. I mean, people were terrified. People yeah. were ready to like lynch anybody who was walking down the street and even match mm -hmm. this resemblance. So they were the pressure was just so high at that time that they they didn't want to say anything about satanic panic. You see what I'm saying? They didn't want yeah. to mention that. They're like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. We can't we can't even throw Satan in here. Like people are already terrified enough. Right. Um but man, crazy case, crazy case. I really enjoyed yep. studying this one, man. I enjoyed the next uh, dog Sun I get Sam documentary. Next dog I get, I'm naming Harvey. 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 Oh, Harvey. You got to get you I another get black, black lab, lab named Harvey. Yeah. <laughs> right? You need, to, you need to get him for a friend from No one's going to get oh, the Harvey reference at all, but that's going to make it all the better. <laughs> right? I get another dog. I'm just going to name him Berkowitz. I'm just kidding. Right. I never do that. Hey, Bert. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Good. Man. Yeah, this mm. one I, I just doesn't sit right with me. But and tell us what you guys think. Was uh, Crawford acting alone? Was Berkowitz acting right. alone? Do you believe any of Maury Terry's theories? Um, I, it's just too much coincidence for me to ignore, you know. Yeah, and I try not to go down these rabbit holes too far. Um, I, I typically believe people do act alone a lot of times, but man, this one it it was uh, just after the Manson murders, and this was a time where it was 
kind of popular to be, you know, to follow that darkness. Uh, yeah. If you were, if you were a young dude that had nothing going on, like Berkowitz, yeah, you know, uh, now you could easily fall into this stuff. Now I have I have another uh, thing I want to bring up. There was another witness, and he didn't come forward until like way later, like 2011 or something like that, because he didn't he didn't realize that what he witnessed that night hap- he saw on the same night as the murder until then. Allegedly, that's what he says. Mm-hmm. But allegedly, this guy was walking past the church and he heard some flute playing inside of the church. Oh yeah, and you remember this? Did yes, you hear about I heard this? this? And Arliss was in there, supposedly nude, and like there was some kind of sexual thing going on. Yeah, and didn't, some guy was like, "I didn't, I did not believe this motherfucker for a second. Why would he make that up though? What the fuck is that? What's that I don't all know, about? Attention, I don't know. But I just can't buy that Arliss. Like, come on. But if it Come was on. like a ritual type thing going on though, and there were more people there, the why he made somebody it sound is that Arliss was participating in it though, like willingly? Well, he, like she he was... couldn't tell. He couldn't tell. She could be dead already by then. Oh yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, maybe. He said that she was laying there naked. She could very well have been dead. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know. It just it just seems odd. Um, it just seems like a, an odd thing to make up, doesn't it? And didn't he mention that the guy had blonde curly hair as well? Oh, so, I don't know, but that would be interesting. The blonde curly hair thing just keeps coming up. Well, I know, I know the uh, investigators tracked down this flute player because they said that he, that the guy that noticed the flute player said he recognized him from Stanford Band. So they tracked this guy down, and he said, oh, yeah, I did have a blonde uh, curly-haired wig at the time. So this guy mm-hmm. had a wig, too, that matched, but they tested his DNA, and there was no Look at a picture of Michael match. Carr, too, by the way. Michael Carr had blonde curly hair. Short blonde curly hair. There you go. That dude, the cars. Know, There's a lot of weirdness to this case. You could just get stuck on this one. Uh, yes, you can. I just, yes, I just find can. it so hard to believe that Stephen Crawford, the security guard, did this on his own accord and then just, you know, just yeah, hung too. out in the area I, for the next 40 years until he got caught. And that was his only, his only murder was that one. one yeah. Of the most heinous, yeah. like organized. Posed yeah, I, I, type of satanic overtones even, to it. Just I don't get it. And then he didn't even rape her either. So it's not like you could say it was like just this random crime of passion where this this you know old hermit who felt like he'd been done wrong in life saw a vulnerable young lady and took. But the killer of did get off sexually. There was semen from the killer found on the pillow. Yeah, he did get so. off sexually, but I'm saying it, that that. It, that even makes it more so that it's it wouldn't be the first murder. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly. That's my point. It's just, yeah. Nothing sits right with me, man. Nope. All right. You know what oh. does sit right in my armpits? Oh, my Gaia. Oh, oh my Gaia sits perfect in there. It smells delicious. <laughs> you guys don't know what Oh, my Gaia is. It's an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben- and aluminum-free organic ingredients. Guys, there's tons of scents to choose from, and you know in these summer months coming up, and I think it's going to be a hot one. Uh, I mean, y'all out there in the uh, in the Midwest, Colorado, I know y'all already getting temperatures over 100 degrees in Denver? What the hell? Like, Ugh. I didn't even know it got that hot, that high of an elevation. That's insane. But you guys... Don't don't stink too, right? You can't help to sweat, but you don't gotta stink. 
You can get tons of scents like vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, uh, bergamot, amber. We have our very own scent, True Crime Pine. Guys that we're super happy about. Oh my guy, I made that just for True Crime guys and True Crime guys listeners. And you guys, because you are listeners, you can use the word creeper for 15% off your order. That's C-R-E-E-P-E-R for 15% off your order at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram or on ohmygaia.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com. And guys, there's always uh, new scents being added. Uh, one of my wife's favorite scents is Sailor. That's a fairly new one. That's still on. Uh, that's still available. Pear. Um, there's tons of great Pear scents, guys. Barbershop. Amazing. Barbershop's another great one. Smells fresh. Smells clean. So, guys, there's definitely something uh, something for you. And if if you're not in, if you don't want to change deodorants, there's also scented oils, beard oils, and all kinds of new things that are being added from uh, Oh My Guy all the time. So. Again, check that out, guys, at ohmygaia.com, O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com. Right on. Right. I want to take a moment to thank everybody who's gone and rated and reviewed the show. On iTunes, we got H.G. Inbar uh, in the U.S. Said, thanks, this podcast is my favorite. Not only is it seamless, funny murder hybrid, it makes my hour-long commute enjoyable and exciting. I traded my freeloader status, and I am no longer just... uh, just a regular listener, but a Patreon subscriber. I'll be burning right. through the unlock content soon enough. Thanks for helping us along the path of the creepers. Right, Thank now you. You're a potty creeper. Yeah. <laughs> um, then we got Ashley Elrod in the US. Said, love you guys and your take on true crime. Michael, I love your songs. I think they add to the awesomeness of the podcast. You two are great together. Um, I crack up, which makes these hard topics easier. Lauren, I'm sorry. I'm a huge Chiefs fan. God damn it. God damn it. For my whole life, and I'm just catching up. I hear your anxiety over the Super Bowl a couple years ago. I'm sorry for your loss in 2020. Uh, <laughs> it still stings. It still I don't even like hearing up. the word Chiefs around me. Right? <laughs> don't do it. I'm hoping even we got our, we have- our young version of Pat Mahomes in uh, my boy Trey Lance. So I'm oh, yeah. I'm excited you guys for that. Run for your money in the future. Hell, yeah. Um, then we got Denver uh, Dever, Dever Lover in the U.S. said, finally, another good podcast. I've listened to a lot of true crime podcasts, and I was determined to find another one I can binge, and I can hold on my attention while I work, and I did. A great duo. Thank you, Dever Lover. Then we got Clyde's Bond in the U.S. said, used to be a freeloader. Love this podcast. Already binged every podcast on here, and now I'm a Patreon burning through that and following on Instagram. M. Thank <laughs> right you, on. M. Thank you. Um, Welcome to Patreon. Yep. And yeah, that about does it. So thank you guys for taking the time to go and do that. We appreciate appreciate it very much. Um, That's right. Even if you just go click five stars and throw in fire emojis, we will give you guys a uh, uh, shout out on the show. Absolutely. And if you guys are wondering what all that Patreon talk is, check out patreon.com slash true crime guys. Or we have a link to all of our true crime guys stuff on Patreon, Twitter, at true crime guys. You guys can find links to that. And we have Tons of extra content on there. You get access to our once-a-month premium Patreon episode. So every four weeks, we have an episode that's only released on Patreon. And if you join on the $5 tier, you get access to Just the Banter, which we do every Friday. It's a great way to get involved with the show because we usually answer listener questions. And then at the next tier, at the $10 tier, you get access to all of that as well as... um. Zoom calls. We had a Zoom meeting this past Friday and got talked to, uh, what, seven or eight party creepers on there. We had a good time. We usually get on there and just hang out for like an hour. You guys, we talk about whatever we want. Uh, it's a good time. It's a good it's a good way to meet the listeners. It's a good way for uh, you guys to get to know us a little bit better. 
and uh, we have a lot of fun. So that's patreon.com slash true crime guys. Um, and also check out our merch, truecrimeguys.threadless.com. You guys, uh, we got tank tops on there. You know, it's getting hot. Uh, all kinds of stuff from mugs to mouse pads to phone cases to shirts, whatever you want. True crime guys, I'll be, get your creeper gear. Get your creeper gear here. Be adding some new designs soon. Uh, guys, I the, the TV design is available on there. That seems to be one of our best sellers. So uh, go check out truecrimeguys.threadless.com. And, it, guys, if you're already caught up on all True Crime Guys stuff, check out our other show, Strange and Unexplained. Wherever you listen, new episodes are dropped on Mondays. Strange and Unexplained. It's where we dive in and we talk about unsolved, missing persons, or strange phenomena. Uh, I give you the background, give you a little bit of the deets, you know what I mean? And then I give you uh, my opinion on the case. And then you get to hear Lorne's side of things, completely separate. We study separate, just like we do for True Crime Guys. And then he brings you his synopsis, the Lorne's synopsis. He's, he breaks down the case like cardboard boxes on there. And you guys get two opinions from, uh, from us on that show as well. It's a little bit different format, but still a True Crime Guys production. So I hope you guys will check that out as well. Check out what critics uh, say is the best Strange and Unexplained podcast available. That's, that's what they say. I mean, we can't help it, you know? Um, <laughs> and also, guys, um, go check out on Spotify, True Crime Guys. We released our first ever mixtape, finally. True Crime Guys, killer oh, mixtape. Uh, it's been a long time in the works. Uh, I've been, I've been uh, bullshitting you guys for years about doing it, and I finally did it. So, uh, True Crime Guys, killer mixtape. You can look for it on Spotify, iTunes, um, wherever you can get music. If you're a TikToker, you can use the music as a That's background. That's right. If you're on TikTok, yes, you can search uh, True Crime Guys on there, and you can use our our songs for TikTok, do some dances to them. Spread the word to the younger Spread generation. The That's right. That's the only way they learn things is on TikTok. So if we're gonna if we're going to have any sustainability, I guess we need to get on there. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll just have to do a 30-second podcast on TikTok. Yeah. If we want <laughs> there we go. <laughs> But yeah, guys. So in, she was born like in '54. Then he, she was killed, and then the guy was caught because uh, yeah. his DNA matched. That's show. right. And then we'll play like five seconds of the intro song. And be like, all right, we'll see yeah. you guys next week. And keep creeping. Right. <laughs> Kids would love it. <laughs> they get. <it. laughs> all right, guys. True crime in 15 seconds. Here we go. Right. No. Yeah. But uh, yeah, guys, anything True Crime Guys Productions, you can check out our link tree. Like I said, um, on Instagram. Um, or on Twitter at True Crime Guys. Very easy to find on Facebook as well. So we appreciate everyone listening and uh, everyone sharing the show, reviews and patrons and all that good stuff. You got anything else, Lauren? Uh, is it Patreon next week? No way. Is it already? I feel like Man, we already we did to... three in a row. What? Three Didn't in a row already? I think this is the third, man. Oh, so. my God. Oh. Jesus, let me check. Let's let's check. Let's see. We just did. We did Steve the Gambler last week, and then Sinister, Sis- Sinister Sisters. Yep, Sinister Sisters. So yeah, next week is going to be Patreon. Yep. All right. So well, guys, look out for that. Get your lotto ticket. Get in on it. It's yep. gonna be. We're we're uh, we already picked the case, and the, let's just say the Freeway Serial Killer series is started back up. It's not over yet. We thought Uh-oh. we'd had them all. We found another one. Oh, my. God. We spread those things out so hard. Can you imagine somebody end. trying to just listen to the Freeway series? Good luck with that. <laughs> trying to find that shit. It's like the first two are right at the beginning, and then there's one like slapping like the 50s somewhere. Yeah, Patrick then, Kearney. 
Yeah, Patrick Kearney. And then now we're hitting this guy who uh, who somewhat really, got over. You could include Randy Woodfield in there too, the I 5 killer. Yeah. Yeah, you could. He's all up and freeways, down the I 5. Freeways in the 70s and 80s were just, there was just bodies littered everywhere. Yeah, stay off them things, man. People were hitchhiking like crazy. Yeah. All right. All right, yeah, guys. So look forward to that, guys. We'll see you yep. next week. See you next week on Patreon. Keep creeping. Have a great week. Yep. Keep creeping, guys. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us, cause you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making better charming.